right, News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here, and uh, joining me in studio is John Hood. He is now simply just an author. Just a, an, what, eight books you've written now, John? Eight? Uh, nine. Nine? Though who's counting? You are, and I should. I'm just your friendly neighborhood writer That's all. at this point. So, But you are one of the co-founders of the John Locke Foundation, um, so thank you for your work with John Locke all these years. And... Uh, for helping uh, launch that uh, that think tank, it's, and they do great work. I cite them all the time. I have them on, so I've talked with you over the years, mm-hmm. relied on you for uh, expert analysis. And so I think we met back when your hair wasn't gray, true. and I had hair. And you had hair. That's right. <laughs> but who's counting? Right. Uh, so you've got these books out, and we're going to talk politics. We're going to talk about sort of uh, election uh, uh, takeaways and, and the like, but you're in town for, uh, for your books, because so are you are you like actually retired? Is this retirement? Or no, like, are I'm you not just... retired. I still okay. do some work in philanthropy and writing. My, I, I've been writing a newspaper column on North Carolina politics uh, since 1986. So that is a, some some period of time, and that runs in a bunch of places around the state. So I'm still doing a lot of work and writing about po- public policy and politics, and working in my day job giving money to organizations that do things like that. But my uh, my authorial responsibilities have shifted. Now, people would say back when I was writing, for example, books about Social Security reform or health care policy or uh, how North Carolina should reform its tax system or writing a biography of former Governor yeah. Jim Martin. Now, some of my critics would say that I've always been a fiction author. Oh, hang on. Do you want the you got it. rim shot? You got it. There the it is. Okay, okay, there you go. Um, but I would have to say these two novels that I've written are my first intentional ah. fiction. Uh, and they were motivated by the fact that I kind of wanted to do them. You know. Well, that's a good motivation. I mean, I, I could make it more complicated than that, and I will. But the truth is I've always loved history. I've always loved speculative fiction, fantasy, science fiction type of books, Lord of the Rings and John Carter and Tarzan books from Edgar Rice Burroughs and Isaac Asimov and Robert Heinlein and things like that. C.S. Lewis. So I've always liked that, and I've always loved history, and, and I've actually written histories in the past, a history of advertising, a history of investing. So I decided to sort of like a Reese's peanut butter cup. If you, you know, you've got chocolate, you've got peanut butter, you smush them together. Maybe you have a mess. True. Or maybe you have a tasty snack. There treat. you go. So, it's the, so this is the Reese's cup of North Carolina history. Trademark pending. There you go. Trademark well, pending. P- p- trademark not pending because we could never be, use the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. That's, oh, true. Except yeah. in a fair use kind of com- right. comment. Well, so this so the first one was Mountain Folk. Right. How and when? Because this has been out for a, yeah, a that year came or out so. a year ago, okay. and then the Forest Folk is its sequel, and it came out just a few weeks ago. I'm, I'm speaking tonight at the May twentieth Society, which is our local group honoring the, Declar- Mecklen- the Declaration of Independence. Speaking and so- of historical fiction. No, hey, now wait just a minute. I, I kid. I'll ask you about that, too. I'm there not- was a declaration. We simply do not have a copy of the actual. So, in other words, thing. no proof. There you don't have plenty you don't of have proof. there's plenty of witnesses that something very significant happened on May 19th and 20th uh-huh. that people afterwards construed to be Mecklenburg declaring that it was no longer under the sovereignty of the crown. That part, honestly, I think is basically undeniable. That that's true. Exactly what document was generated and why what, Jefferson may have gotten a little hacked off what, about these right. stories. Yeah, which we don't need to get into in great detail, but I would just say that there is real history here. The May 20th on the North Carolina flag is justified, but if someone t- tries to show you a copy of it, 
that's where you get to have some reasonable questions. Yeah, because what the only version of it that allegedly it was reconstructed from a memory after a fire. Yes, and this was uh, this was one of the people involved. I believe it was John McNitt Alexander. And since I'm, I'm, I am a Charlotte native, mm-hmm. and uh, I am an Alexander, I mean, I'm descended from two of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, the Mecklenburg Declaration. So, you know, if you start challenging whether this is real or not, them's fighting words, Yankee. I figured I'd get it out of the way But first. I'll have to say that I also don't believe that we have a, a real copy of it, and that what we do have is something called the Mecklenburg Resolves, mm-hmm. which was published contemporaneously in a newspaper. That's a real thing. That is real. And that is a real document that has a lot of heft. I mean, it basically says that the authority of the crown is no longer in existence in Mecklenburg County, and here's how we're going to set up our government. So if you were to declare in some unknown specifically way that Mecklenburg was no longer under the sovereignty of the King of England in 1775, something you might do is put together a series of resolves or planks or something. This is how we're going to set up our independent government. Mm-hmm. And that we have. Mm-hmm. So I'm fine. You're, you're, you should be fine with it, too. I'm, I am all right. <laughs> I am all right with the recognition. I am all right with saying something happened. Not okay with the... The idea that it it was the first con- or the first declaration of well, independence. You know like, that- I don't like because like, that's where that all started <laughs> yeah. a couple of years back. And and I was I, I was a uh, you know flag waver, if you will, for uh, finding a bit of history because Charlotte tears all of it down. Yes. So uh, like, hey, here's a little bit of history. We should kind of hold on to this, make a thing of it. I like the fact that there are events and all of that. Absolutely. I just I, I think it should be I think it should hew closer to. Your original uh, fiction works rather than more so this. Well, as as a matter of fact, uh, I went to Independence High School where I was the managing editor of the Declaration of Independence, the newspaper at Independence High School. And in 1982, there was a local film produced. It was broadcast on WTVI here in town and elsewhere, uh, the depicting the events of of the revolution, including the Mecklenburg Declaration. And I was in the movie. You were in the movie. So when you tell me, I mean, I know it happened because I was there. In the movie. In the movie. There you go. But anyway, so right. Mountain Folk is, is historical fantasy. Right. Historical I mean, fantasy. Yes. And, I think, and that's important because people may be kind of surprised to see George Washington and what, sea serpents and monsters and, uh, all in the same story. Y- yes. I don't know why because everybody knows there is a sea monster in the Chesapeake Bay. Her name is Chessie. Chessie, yeah. No. Uh, so I don't know why people would be surprised. So what I decided to do was tell the story of America by using historical characters like a, a Daniel Boone, who's a pic- pictured on the front of Forest Folk, of a Mountain Folk, or Junaluska, the Cherokee hero, who is the person pictured on the cover of Forest Folk. These are real people who really lived and had adventures. George Washington is in the book. Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton are in the book. They debate, you know, the propriety of national banking regulation. Plus, there is a giant fire-breathing salamander. You know, it's that, why not? It's that kind of book. You've read a book like this a million times. That's right. You know, right. I, the, my only real change is that they're debating banking regulation, right, and not like the tariff. But other than that, you've probably seen this story. Uh, before. Yeah, it I mean, does there, sound familiar. There are hellhounds that are chasing the over mountain men as they march to King's Mountain. It's that kind of book. Yeah. So are you worried about plagiarism, that someone's going to come after you for these stories? No. <laughs> Seems unlikely. That's right. So I, I'm, so I'm, I am kind of curious as to why you, you feel this is the vehicle. Is it meant to, uh, is it meant to, to target kids so they take an interest in history? Is it meant to target people who are 
uh, more attracted to fantasy uh, literature and you try to slip some historical stuff past them? What, what, well, what was the, aside from you just wanting to write the book? Um, Pete, it's for the child in all of us, oh my as they say. Syrup yeah. is dripping from my mouth. Uh, no, it's it it is designed not for kids per se, but for teens and adults. Mm-hmm. I mean, so a, a precocious ten year old would enjoy it, uh, but certainly teens and adults. Uh, it is designed to impart history, but also be exciting and adventuresome. Even the fantasy elements of the book. I mean, a lot of the book is very historically detailed and richly. I mean, I've researched it. I did figure out could Daniel Boone be in the same place as Isaac Selby on that particular day. If not, I don't write it into the story. It's that kind of historical detail. But then there are elves, dwarves, yeah. and sea monsters as there were. Who, who are, you know, not entirely established as real. Okay. You know, it's sort of, it's mech decky. <laughs> so, but here. The, you the realize point, you're undermining. I'm having fun. I know, you're un, but you're, un, you're either undermining the the book or the mech deck? I'm not I sure doing, which at this point. I, I am demonstrating just how much fun it is That's right. to know a lot of history, but also know legends. Mm-hmm. And basically, all, except for a few characters and names and so forth, even the fantasy elements of the book are not made up. They are authentic folklore. For example, the sea monster in Chesapeake Bay is mm-hmm. a thing, is a legend. Yeah. Uh, I use a – there's a battle with Daniel Boone and some of his pals fighting a giant rock monster on top of a Tennessee mountain. Well, there really were were Cherokee legends of the Stoneclads who lived on that mountain. Um, I use uh, at uh, Chimney Rock in the second book, Forest Folk, in Chimney Rock, there there were legends of flying creatures that flew over Chimney Rock in the early 1800s. They were written about in the newspapers, in which case they must have happened. That had to be true. There's no way a newspaper would report something that didn't happen. So it's it's combining historical fact – and legend that actually is rooted in the region. Mm-hmm. And so even the hellhounds, I mentioned the hellhounds, uh, there aren't any legends of mountain men on the way to King's Mountain. But there really are legends of demonic dogs in the area where the King's Mountain people marched. Right. The over mountain people marched from East Tennessee and Southwest Virginia and West North Carolina. They marched down uh, the, through, the, through the hills, through the mountains, down towards Cowpens and then over to King's Mountain. That happened. We, uh, of course. Yeah. And there were legends of these monsters. John Hood is with me. He's got two books, Mountain Folk and Forest Folk. <laughs> News Talk 1110-993-WBT. Pete Callender here with John Hood. He is the author of... Eight books? What 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 did you tell me? Uh, Seven, I'm the author nine, of nine, nine books. books. Yes, the latest two of the series, uh, Mountain Folk, and the latest one now, Forest Folk. And I should tell people if you are interested to learn more about these books, folklorecycle.com. That's folklorecycle.com. Uh, and we're, so we're talking a little bit about the book. You're in town for. Uh, you're also, I should point out, you're a columnist uh, as well. I do read your work. I quote you, and I. Uh, Basically, just read your entire columns on air. Usually, no, I'm kidding, not really. But I, uh, uh, so I read your your work uh, you, as a columnist. But you are also one of the uh, co-founders of the John Locke Foundation, um, and I, you're still on the board there. As well, I am right, yes. so still affiliated with them. Um, and I think at the last time we spoke, we talked about the book you wrote about Jim Martin at right. the time. That's right. Yes. Um, and so we will get into some of the political uh, discussion. I wanted to just come back to 
the uh, the legends that you have in the book that you draw from that are actual people. These are actual stories. Some of them, obviously, you've injected fantasy. I think people should be able to recognize that the like the the fairies and the trolls and whatever like those would be the fantasy characters. Uh, you you should be able you to tell. Able I mean, there, to. there's a there's a story that that's on my website at folklorecycle.com that kind of bridges the two books. And you're learning about, in that time, the Tories, the people who were pro-British, uh, who came out to fight on behalf of the crown against the American revolutionaries. And there's a mustering of these Tories, and you're reading about them. And there's a lot of history there that I hope people will understand. There was, there were, some of my ancestors were Tories. Most were patriots. But if you have roots in the Carolinas, you will have some Tories in your family tree. And I try to give everybody a fair shake to explain in the book why they're doing what they're doing. And I do do this with the Tories. And you could be reading along in that story, which is called The Bard. You could be reading along in all of its history. When the mermaid flips her tail, mm-hmm. that should be a good sign that there's also fantasy. Right. It's a clue. It's, it's a clue. Right. Now, in all seriousness, though, though I love the adventure part of this, it's great fun to include the fantasy characters, things out of, legit, you know, out of real folklore in the Carolinas and elsewhere. There is a serious purpose, and, and one of them is um, history knowledge is woefully short. Uh, only about a third of Americans could pass the U.S. citizenship test. Now, of course, all the incoming legal immigrants have to pass it if they want to become citizens, but only a third of Americans could actually do that because they don't have basic knowledge. Only about half of Americans have a clear sense of historical chronology. In other words, according to a recent study, about half of Americans think – that the American Revolution happened after either the War of 1812. Oh, dear Lord. The don't, Emancipation don't Proclamation oh, or the Civil say, War. Don't say Civil War. Oh, my God. You got it. That's, so, so this is a serious problem. And I think that one of the answers, in fact, I've done, because I'm a nerd, I've done some actual public policy research about education uh, and the best ways to teach history. And there's some pretty good evidence that historical fiction hmm. for many young people and not so young people, historical fiction is one of the best ways people learn history. If they're not naturally inclined towards it, reading a textbook or hearing a lecture may not really do it for them. But if they read a rich story that has real compelling characters or exciting adventure or something, but is also historic, at least in, in big chunks of it, are historically accurate or relevant, they come away knowing something they didn't know before. So I am hoping. Yeah. That people who read Mountain Folk will know a lot more about the Revolutionary War. People who know who read Forest Folk will know more about the War of 1812 and the Trail of Tears and some of the things I described uh, more than they did before. And the people who do know about those things, I think, will enjoy seeing their perhaps some of their real American heroes fighting sea monsters. Right. Why I not? mean, who wouldn't like that? Right, exactly. Well, stories are powerful. They they can unite people, they can divide, but they can unite people behind a shared sense of history and accomplishment. And so I, I agree. It's one of the things that I think that is, uh, is missing from education, I think, to our profound detriment. John Hood is joining me in studio. He is the author of the latest book is Forest Folk. Previous one is Mountain Folk. These are historical fantasy, so a lot of history, but sea monsters as well. Um, we were talking uh, about the woeful state of uh, historical knowledge uh, in America. Thank you, K-12 uh, industry. Um, people don't know our history. Um, and during the break, we were discussing this. So I'll just bring it back up because the 
State Board of Education, about a year or so ago, they did their uh, update to the social studies and history standards. And there was this great debate, critical race theory, gender theory, and all this stuff. And what are you teaching the kids? And there was this, there, there's this assertion outright oftentimes that education shouldn't be promoting a value that America is a pretty great place. And when people on the state board of ed said, Hey, you know, we're not opposed to teaching all of the history warts and all, but we kind of do think you should be expressing a pro America sentiment in K-12 education, not to say that everything we did was great and perfect, but we still do think that there's a value there that should be preserved. What say you? I agree with that. I think that uh, America is an exceptional place in the history of the world. That doesn't always mean a better place, but it's definitely a different place. Its history is different. I think it's often usually better. I'm just saying it's exceptional for Same sure. Here. Yeah, my bias is on the table. Yeah. And furthermore, if you're going to have uh, a, a public schools and one of their primary jobs is to impart what it requires to be a good citizen, which in my opinion is actually more important than the vocational aspects of school, mm-hmm. at least at K-12 level, the purpose of it is to prepare citizens to to accept their responsibilities as uh, as workers or entrepreneurs or people creating value in the marketplace, as parents, as members of communities, as voters. If that role, I absolutely think it is the public school's job to teach American history a lot, to teach it very broadly, to include lots of different kinds of stories. Because, yes, if you went back and looked at American history textbooks from the 1940s or 50s, they are exclusivistic. There isn't a whole lot about right. what if you're not a white male. That's true. Right. That part is true. So you're going to add in a rich tapestry of different kinds of stories and different kinds of people. And they're but, great stories. But they're they're all aspiring to the American ideal. The American ideal is is good. And we certainly should include the idea that America was founded on certain principles that were admirable then and are admirable today. The founders are admirable because they founded America on those principles, but those founders did not always follow those principles because, of course, they are human beings, and you will never find any society on the face of the earth, unless, except in my book. Well, I was going to say, where you're a fantasy writer here. Where right? non-human beings are running the government, right. right? So human beings, by definition, James Madison argued that, of course, if we were perfect, if men were angels, there would be no need for government. Right. Uh, The problem is that we can't find angels to staff the government, so flawed human beings are in charge of the institution that is responding to the flaws of human beings. And so any government, American government or British government or Mexican government or any other kind of government, is going to have injustices and outrages and poor decisions. And we need to know as Americans, primarily learning about our history but also the rest of the world, focusing on our history, we need to know those bad decisions. But that is not the same thing as being value neutral right. regarding America per se. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, America's great. And in fact, we can't have... Whoa, whoa, whoa. Calm I down, know. MAGA I'm getting King carried away. I'm getting carried away. <laughs> but see, America <laughs> has always been great. I don't think we need to make America great again. It's never not been great. Mm-hmm. But here's the point. We can't have a glorious future if we don't have some sense that uh, America's past was glorious. And it was glorious. It, it wasn't... Was- perfect right but it has a tremendous amount of great accomplishment and progress and 
people who were left behind, who then eventually were brought into the story, people who, as Martin Luther King put it, got a promissory note, and it took too long for the country to pay it, but the country has been paying it. And that whole story is a glorious tale of adventure and accomplishment and progress. And in my little way, I'm trying to tell that story to as many different kinds of people as possible, some people who love history, some people who love an adventure story, maybe people who love both. But I think whether it is historical fiction like I do or writing history books or creating a history curriculum or making movies and TV shows or games, Mm -hmm. all the different ways that young people today learn about their history, um, it needs to be inclusive. I agree with that, don't you? Yeah. It needs to be inclusive, but it also needs to tell the story of America as a story of a great idea becoming over time a reality. Well, and that's the key is who's telling the story? Do they believe that the idea was a great idea? I would trust you to tell that story because you believe that the idea is a great idea. You have other people, though, that tell these stories and they don't agree. They think it was a flawed idea. They think the entire root of the country is not a good idea. And so when they tell their stories or our stories as Americans, right, they tell these stories they have a different perspective. and They do. Yeah, and, and that's— And because I believe in, in the free society, which is an American principle, mm-hmm. um, I think they have every right to tell those stories. They can write their own books. They can write their own books with sea monsters in them. Right. They portray America as horrible, and that's fine. I probably won't read them, Same. but I, I respect their right to do it. But I do not think that they should be in charge of creating the curriculum for public schools. Right. Because that, that right, seems like a bad idea to me. It does. And, and this is and I know how it sounds as soon as I start to say it. I know what it sounds like to say this. But if if people who don't believe that the original idea and the formation, if they're not cool with that and they're the ones that get to dictate the K-12 curriculum and the, the standards and such, then eventually you end up start cranking out an entire citizenry that agrees with them. And they don't believe that this is worth preserving. And that is it seems like a recipe for overthrowing the system that it's at least a recipe for discord Mm -hmm. and difficulty and dissension. And it is their agenda. Mm -hmm. I mean, to give them credit, they believe that maybe not a literal revolution. They may not all be like socialist revolutionaries or something. Some of them might be, but I mean, many of them, many of them believe that our society is fundamentally flawed, Mm -hmm. systemically racist, et cetera, et cetera. And they want a massive, you know, uh, redoing of, of the social order. Um, and they think that education is one of their tools for making that happen. I take them at their word, and I disagree with their goal, so I su- suggest we not give them the tools. Yeah, I agree. Um, my guest is John Hood. He is the author of uh, Mountain Folk, and the latest book is now Forest Folk. Uh, you can check out his website, FolkloreCycle.com. We're going to get into after the break here. News Talk 1110-993-WBT. John Hood joining me in studio. He's in town to do a talk. It's sold out. Sorry, you can't go. Um, But he's talking about his books. You can see them at FolkloreCycle.com. But you are also a follower of the politics. And so I would be remiss if I didn't take this opportunity to pick your brain about 
some of the contests that we just saw after, uh, on primary night. So let's start top of ticket, U.S. Senate race. Wait, wait I, thought you, I thought it was clearly understood we were going to talk soil and water conservation districts. We could go from the bottom up. Oh, okay. That's general election stuff. Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Never mind. So, <laughs> so I wasn't, no one should have been surprised that Ted Budd won the Republican Ted nomination. Ted Budd. Sorry, I was not pronouncing right. that correctly. Right. I did not give him my full and complete endorsement. Right, right. Uh, not surprised. Well, I, were you surprised by the margin? I was surprised by the margin. Mm-hmm. It was higher than I thought. I thought that uh, I, I, I was fairly confident Pat McCrory would win his home county. He did. Mecklenburg County did go for McCrory. 70 votes, I by think. By a little bit. Uh-huh. But he did do well in Mecklenburg, but Bud won all the counties. I thought uh, Mark uh, uh, Mark Walk. Walker would do a little bit better. Anyway, I thought that Bud might win around in, in the mid-40s. We got all the way up into the, into the high 50s, which surprised me a little bit. But it didn't surprise I mean, $14 million give or take, spent on your behalf, and nothing like that in response by McCrory or yeah. Walker or people supporting them. You know, I have been, and I've read a lot of political science research about this and talked to people, people get carried away with uh, election spending explanations for everything. Well, I mean, he only won because he spent all this money. Oftentimes, candidates spend a lot of money and their opponents spend a lot of money. And as long as you spend enough money to get to a certain sort of critical mass, then the additional $3 million, it doesn't actually proportionally add a lot to your vote total. That only assumes that both sides are expending a high amount of money, but only Bud was spending a high amount of money in this race. And so I think that was the fundamental problem. Well, they raised the same amount roughly for four and a half million Independent apiece, expenditures the, made the difference. And, that, and that's the game that we're in now where... Uh, the political, but because we've created rules so that money can't flow to the campaigns, I think they should. I think candidates. Then you would know. I think candidates should be able to raise and spend as much money as they want. That would be more disclosed and transparent. It would also give the campaigns more control over their election. I mean, they were unfair ads, and I wrote about one of them because it involved a, a citation of a Locke Foundation, incorrectly citing a Locke Foundation piece. Uh, but there were unfair ads run against Pat McCrory. And so if someone got mad about that and called the Ted Budd campaign and said, take down the ad, you know what the Ted Budd campaign would have to say? It's not our ad. Right. Not only can we not take it down, we couldn't even we couldn't have even coordinated ahead of time and said, don't run this ad because that would have been illegal. Right. That's a weird system to have, these independent expenditure groups having that kind of power. Uh, people on the left, my traditional sparring partners say, yeah, you you agree with me that money is a trouble and we need to get money out of politics. And I would say, no, 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 no. You can't get money out of politics. It's going to flow. So it either can flow directly to campaigns so that Pat McCrory raises money and Ted Budd raises – sorry, Ted Budd <laughs> raises money and Mark Walker raises money and then they make their own decisions. And you can hold them responsible if they run an ad you mm-hmm. think is unfair. But that's not the world we So have. do you want to see lift the cap? Absolutely. And then, but then also ban – the super PACs or something? I don't think you can actually you ban them I don't think either, you either because this is a free speech question. It's right. just the money flows there because it can't run. I mean, I think campaigns would have a lot higher share of the mm. money if they were legally allowed to do so. And political parties would have a higher share of the money, rather these independent groups, if they were allowed to do so. And I'm in favor of allowing them to do so. All right. Next up, uh, let's do the uh, congressional races. Uh, Madison Cawthorn out. I uh, what. I was not surprised by that. I was relieved myself. I, as a conservative, I have been critical of Cawthorn. I get a lot of hate mail whenever I wrote about Cawthorn, though not in the last two or three months. Interesting. That hate mail kind of disappeared as people began to see what some of us had already seen. Mm-hmm. Not only that he was ill-suited to be a member of Congress, but that honestly it might be in his best interest to get out of this office, get out of the limelight, and get his life straightened out. 
And so, and I, I know this sounds like I'm sort of faking. I'm not. Uh, six months ago, I really disliked this person. And I try not to dislike people in politics. I have a lot of friends across the aisle, and I genuinely try to understand people's point of view. I just thought he was so irresponsible and horrible that I really disliked him. The more I learned about him in the latter stages of the campaign, the more you see all the leaks and all the things, I started to feel sorry for Madison Cawthorn, or at least hold some of the other people around him accountable for not helping this young man make better decisions. Mm -hmm. There's not an argument for keeping him. It was actually a really strong argument to get him out, it's sort of like a kid who becomes a child star in Hollywood. And what is it? Like 80% of the time they become complete disasters? Right. That's what happened to Madison Cawthorn. The answer is not to give him another movie deal. The answer is to bring him home. Yeah. And, and do that's you think what that, has happened here. Do you think that that, that that gave voters that may have liked him before, but sort of gave them a way to vote against Cawthorn without feeling bad about voting against that, that is my belief you know there was an argument that this drip 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 of bad news was going to backfire because it would make people feel sympathy for Cawthorn mm-hmm. and feel like he's being picked on by the evil national media and yeah. all that and I understood that I think that it didn't work out that way because it wasn't a constant barrage of clearly left-wing messages attacking him for being an extreme conservative and how dare because a lot of these Republican primary voters would have responded by reflexively defending him in that scenario. Yeah. In this case, it was all about personal decision, you know, uh, c- repeated driving without licenses, repeated speeding, failure to follow certain rules, being investigated for this, saying horrible things, the kind of stuff that's not ideological and kind of makes you feel like this is a lost young man who doesn't need to be in Congress and I don't have to hate him to vote against him. I think, right. it, I think it worked for Chuck Edwards, who was the nominee, the Republican nominee, state senator, um, who I think now will be congressman. Yeah. Uh, and I will say also that uh, had Cawthorn beaten Edwards, gotten into the general, I have no doubt he would be going back to Congress because the Democrats decided to put Jasmine Beach Ferrara up against him. Jasmine Beach Ferrara was a county commissioner, District 2, so not even not, not even a, a, like countywide a, a, a official. countywide official. And District 2... She was the head of the campaign for Southern Equality, so she was big on the uh, gay marriage stuff. She was not stuff. a saleable general election. No. The, the Democrats uh, did not take seriously the idea that they might need to run against Madison, in my opinion. Or yeah. they would have recruited a better saleable. Because they could have defeated Cawthorn in the fall election, even in a Republican year, with a more sensible sort of center-left, center kind of Democratic nominee. That's not but they, they But they can't – that's the thing. Asheville will not let the, the Western North Carolina – uh, Democrats pick a sensible candidate. Look at two years ago. They got Mo Davis. So there you go. That was the closest thing to like a rational Democrat they could muster. And yikes. Okay. Uh, John Hood, check out his books, folklorecycle.com, mountain folk and forest folk. Great to catch up with you again. Welcome back to, to your old stomping grounds down here. And uh, we'll talk with you again soon. Thank you much. All right. News is next.